The scripture for this morning is found in Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew 28, and I'll be starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, it's wonderful to be here with you this morning. I feel right at home in a uh, school, or at least a former school. Uh, The South Campus of Bethlehem Baptist Church uh, has existed since uh, 2006, and we've been in schools uh, all that time. Um, And uh, this is better than where we meet at Lakeville South High School because the light shines in here. We meet in a theater, and it's as dark as a tomb. <laughs> but uh, the light is shining in here, and may the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus shine in our hearts today. Three, two, one. Let me begin that way. Uh, three, what would a sermon from anybody be without three points? <laughs> and there are going to be three points to this message, and most of the time that I'm here uh, uh, in, in, in the pulpit, uh, I will be speaking on those three points. Three, two. The theme this morning matches up to a, a theme I, th- I think runs right through the message that the Lord has laid on my heart. Two, two, two ways of defining grace. Now, the main thing that we think of where grace is concerned is the unmerited favor that God shows to us undeserving sinners, right? That, that's probably the, the main thing that we even sang and celebrated this morning. And grace is also power. It is power to do the will of God. One of the clearest places this is uh, mentioned is, is by the Apostle Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.10. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, I think that's probably that unmerited favor. Yet His grace, he continues, yet His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all the others, probably all the other apostles. He had some catching up to do. I worked harder than all the others, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So, grace is both unmerited favor, it's God's leniency, to the undeserving, and it's the power to do His will. It's the power to keep God's commands. The application I see in the message before us in this text is that Christianity is action. Christianity is obedience. It's power to do His will. And Christianity is safety. It's comfort. That's God's power to secure us to Himself. I want you to see those two dimensions. These two dimensions of Christianity, power to do His will, grace to receive His leniency, 
They work themselves out in the Great Commission. These two kinds of Christianity never compete with one another. They are not a contradiction. They work together. Three, two, one. I want to start with a single word. It has five letters. It's a greatly overused word. Because uh, it's so short, it only makes a single sound uh, on our ears. And as I said, it's, it's applied to all kinds of things, so much so that it's probably lost its impact, despite the fact that when we apply it to what we're going to talk about this morning, it really fits. What Jesus said to His disciples is, in fact, great the Great Commission. Think of that word great. Now, for some of you younger ones who might want (laughs) to struggle to keep track of uh, what I'm going to say here, you might want to count the number of times that I use the word great in this message. Jesus didn't use it, and the, the apostles didn't use it in describing this text, but it is the Great Commission. It bears recalling that these closing words to Matthew's gospel, thank you, Pastor Charlie, for giving me the opportunity to end this preaching series through the the gospel of Matthew. I don't know how long you've been at it, but trust that its message will never disappear out of your recollection and out of your practice. This gospel text comes on the heels of the great foundational event at the center of our history. It is that flashpoint of meaning for all of time, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We celebrated it just a week ago. Here are the facts for us to remember about that great event. Jesus' death on a Roman cross. He was stripped of His clothing. He was hung between two robbers. He was derided by all the passers-by as well as the Jewish authorities. He called out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And after hanging in darkness from 9 o'clock in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there was another loud cry and a final yielding up of His Spirit. His death was a public, painful, planned, and punishing execution. His burial. He was buried in a rich man's borrowed tomb. His body was taken down. It was wrapped in a clean linen shroud, and he was laid in that new tomb, and a great stone was rolled to its entrance. He was observed that evening by two loyal, faithful, loving women, and the grave was secured, sealed, and guarded by a squad of soldiers. All then seemed to be finished until the morning of the third day when the truly great things began to happen, His resurrection. It was not really the end at all. It was the dawning, not just of a first day or of a new first week. It was the dawning of a brand new age, beginning quietly enough with the same women returning to see the tomb. And instead of being witness. Instead, they were witnesses to a great earthquake. You see it in the text, Matthew 28, 2. And the angel of the Lord descended from heaven. He rolled back the stone. He frightened the, the uh, 
soldiers nearly to their own deaths, he calms the women and then dispatched them to tell the disciples that they were about to see their risen Lord in Galilee. And so the women depart quickly with fear and with great joy. Verse 8. Then they encounter Jesus alive again themselves. They fall at His feet. They worship Him. And He repeats the angel's directions for His brothers, that is, the eleven disciples, to go to Galilee where they will see Him. So, in every way, parallel to Jesus' death, now Jesus' resurrection is as public, it is as personal, it is as physical, it is, and it is even more overwhelmingly powerful. So, against this background of a great death-conquering victory, the defeat of the devil by this great person, let us pray to our great God that these concluding words of Matthew's gospel will find great fulfillment among us in our lives and in the life of this church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to behold what in advance Daniel probably saw ages before. He beheld you descending, ascending on the clouds from earth to heaven where you were presented before your Father, the Ancient of Days. And to you was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should adore you. Your dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and your kingdom shall not be destroyed. So, Lord, now help me right now so to speak this message that those who hear it may see you on your throne and may love and hasten the day of your bodily return because we are resolved to do our part to the great task that you gave your church to make disciples of all the nations. In your matchless name, amen. Here's where we're going in this message. The center of the Great Commission is a call to action. I want to wait on that until the end. It is the obvious application directed for us to take action. But on either side of those words directed to us, Jesus says something about Himself. Twice as much, in other words, in this text about God and God's Son than about us. That's a pretty good proportion for us to keep in mind when we recognize what the gospel is. First and foremost, it is about a great God. It is about what He has done. It is about what He is doing. It is about what He will do. That's what to focus on when we share the gospel, who God is and how great He is and what He has done in our lives. And now as well, the effect of that. There's the root. What's the fruit in our life, in your life. So let me begin, first of all, with where the Great Commission begins. All authority, Jesus says, on, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus' great claim. Let me set, it up, set up what I'm going to say under this heading with the question, why did Jesus state this first? Why is this the first declaration of the Great Commission? Great Commission. 
Well, at Matthew 28, 16, the 11 disciples have caught up with Jesus there on a mountain in Galilee. Mountains are significant, aren't they, in the terrain of the Bible? <laughs> I mean, obviously, He made the mountains, all the mountains, in the first place. And Moses went up on a mountain to receive the, the law. This gospel message begins with a kind of new Moses, Jesus, going up on a mountain and preaching this famous message called the Sermon on the Mount. So mountains are significant meeting places with God. And so here it is, perhaps not the mountain from which He ascended, but perhaps. Nevertheless, there they are on the mountain. Verse 17 says, when they saw Him, they worshiped Him, but some doubted. Well, there's a curious thought. (laughs) Here He is in the flesh. Here's what John said at the beginning of of the first epistle. They could touch him. They could hear him. There he was, and yet some doubted. That's a puzzle we need to return to, and that's what we'll do at the end, Lord willing. This great commission begins with Jesus' assertion, so lofty (laughs) that uh, anyone else at any time saying something like this would have been laughed out of the room. What a ludicrous statement to make. All authority has been given to to me. And yet for two, three years in the school of Christ, the unending curriculum before these disciples was the growing authority they saw manifested by this son of David. It begins very early in the gospel, doesn't it? Just if you want to turn back in your Bibles, look to chapter 7 and verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, this is the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. There was something about the way this man put forward the truth about life and God that was unlike any other that had been heard before. Look down the page, chapter 8, verse 8. Now it's not just His teaching, it is His healing power. There's a Roman centurion who recognizes Jesus' authority, authority to command with a word the surrender of physical suffering even at long distance. And so, he submissively replies in verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now skip down to verse 13. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. I was struck as I looked at that story again by the Two commands that uh, the centurion talked about, go and come. 
seems to me that's a pretty good picture of the commands of the gospel. Come, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my, my, take my, what's the word? Yoke. (laughs) Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come, come, and then go. And that's what this text is about. We're going to have a go here. <laughs> go and share. Share how much, you've, how much the Lord has done for you. Go. And beyond anything you can ask or imagine, I, I, I have glory. I have grace for the nations. Another giant demonstration of Jesus' authority is recorded, as you will recall, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 5. The Lord sees the faith of four men who have brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus for healing. And Jesus sees their faith and says, My son, to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Well, there are some theologically astute scribes who are standing there, or perhaps sitting, and they say, Well, what a ridiculous thing. Who can forgive sins but God? Which is exactly the point Jesus is about to make. That you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the paralytic and says, which would be harder for me to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk? And he turns and says, that you may know this, get up and walk. That's authority as well. The greatest authority, the greatest thing Jesus Christ can do in our lives, at least to begin with, is to forgive our sins. Wonderful if He heals our diseases. Wonderful if He helps the centurion's servant or this paralytic. But to say to Him, your sins are forgiven. Sin will keep us out of heaven. But Jesus Christ can forgive those every sin. Amen. Amen. Those of you who, long, who believe in Jesus have that authority of His that your sins are forgiven. Now, here in this text, on the mountain with Him, these eleven eyewitnesses stood around the risen Christ who had supremely proven to them the inescapable reality, the all-authority that belonged to Him. He had previously declared this in John 14, or John 10, verses 14 and following. They now, as we said, physically saw and handled and heard what He said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. <laughs> there's, there's perhaps the greatest demonstration that Jesus has all authority, that He can lay down His life and He can take it up again. One commentator takes on the scope and depth of Jesus' hold on His power by saying it this way, the, fe- the field of Jesus' authority seems to grow as His ministry advances. At the outset, He has authority to forgive sins on earth 
As the days pass on, we read of the authority to act as the final judge of all human lives, to determine the bounds of His own life, laying it down and taking it up at His pleasure. On the eve of the Passion, He speaks of the authority given to Him over all flesh, all mankind. But none of these claims reach the boundless magnificence, I like that expression, the boundless magnificence of the words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus could have had all authority over all the kingdoms of the world before His earthly ministry began without having to spend Himself on the service of His fellow men and to endure the agony of the cross. Had He allowed Himself to listen to the words of the tempter in the wilderness. But precisely because He rejected Satan's offer and remained loyal to to His Father who sent Him into the world and did not shrink in obedience to His will from treading the way of the cross, He now possesses in all its fullness lordship over the entire universe. Now again, why? Why, asking in this moment, did Jesus put this claim of all authority in the Great Commission before commanding the disciples to go and disciple the peoples of the the world? Well, 44 years ago, on May the 19th, 1974, I was brand new to the ministry. I was an assistant pastor, and the senior pastor of the church that I was uh, serving in in Robbinsdale preached a, a good message. And he had an answer. He preached on this text. He was my college pastor and thereafter my pastoral mentor. (laughs) He's now retired down to Jackson, (laughs) Tennessee, and we had lunch with him and uh, and, uh, his wife. He's 82 years old, and that ambassador for Christ is still heralding Jesus' explicit supremacy. Here's what he said way back in 1974. Jesus has the right and the power to send us into the world. The primary reason to go is obedience, because He told us to. We are the sent ones. This commission is our authorization as Christians. We are authorized by God to win others, regardless of living in a day that challenges our right to alter others' lives. Christ has given us the right of imposition, the right of missions is given to those who believe in Christ and to no one else. We have the right from the Lord of all authority to impose His claims on whoever. And in fact, not just the right, it's the most loving thing to do, to withhold from somebody the right of Jesus to rule in their lives. Well, Jesus meant to enliven and enlist lost and broken people. That's what He's doing. That's who you are as a disciple of Jesus. You are to demonstrate and defend and demand unconditionally that Jesus rule your life and the lives of others. Matthew's gospel is shot through with these pervasive new normals of what it means to be a disciple. Humanity has never been challenged with anything so high, so high a bar of belief and behavior is what it means for us, you and me, to be followers of Christ. Consider our calling, brothers and sisters. It's a life of loving our enemies, of freedom from all fear and anxiety, 
of golden rule treatment of others, of being determined to lay up treasure in heaven and not on earth, of being humble servants, not just to those who can serve us back, but to the least and the lost, to the innocent and the vulnerable, to be like sheep among wolves. The joy, the joy of being hated for Jesus' sake, even by our own family. The risk of, le- of loss, perhaps losing everything and yet counting it as gain, and of exercising even a little faith so as to remove mountains. Isn't it an amazing thing that Jesus said, these things that I do, even greater things will you do? That's the life of discipleship to which we are called. Such are some of the new disciple life callings that Jesus summed up in Matthew 16, verses 24 and following. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, will find it. For what will a man profit if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. All of Jesus' authority provides perfect perspective for facing what seems to be an immense task, the immense task of sanctifying our own souls, the immense task of reaching all the nations, the immense task of obeying all Jesus' commands. Those huge alls are not as huge as Jesus' all-authority. Which is the biggest? Think of it. Which of those three alls, all-authority, all commands, all nations. Which of those is the biggest? Well, all the nations, that's a finite number, perhaps 12,000. I didn't bother to… I shouldn't say I didn't bother. I should have counted how many commands Jesus gives. That's a finite number. There is no such metric for measuring the authority of Jesus. It is infinite, and all that He is, He puts to the service of those who will trust and follow Him. All of it, all of it. I think it's why it's first in the Great Commission. What a great way to set us in motion so that we indeed might be agents to cover the earth with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's the great claim. Secondly, the great companionship. Behold, I am with you always. And again, let's pose the question, why does Jesus put that last in the Great Commission? Great claim, now the great companionship. Two reasons come immediately to mind. First reason reinforces what we've already observed. Christianity is a life filled with radical obedience and with vigorous action. It is grace to do the will of God. It's running a race so as to win. It's striking a solid blow, not boxing the air. It's planting and watering and weeding diligently so that we can expect to reap a harvest. 
It's fighting faithfully to our dying breath. Secondly, second reason that simultaneously is that uh, Christianity, in addition to being a continual warfare, is also a lifelong, loving, secure relationship of the deepest personal affection, of God's gentleness as our strength, as His constant comfort and sympathy and help and His healing power. The Bible never emphasizes, he said, one kind of Christianity over the other. Never pits them against each other. Jesus will not be reduced to one or the other of these. He is not merely a daring captain for that kind of person who wants to follow into action. Jesus will likewise not be reduced to a civilian Savior. Jesus is both and. He is over all and He is with all. He is all authoritative and He is ever present. It is Jesus Christ. He indeed is the captain of our salvation. He is the one who cries, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Or perhaps says it in a different tone. Behold. <laughs> Behold. This. I mean, the last words recorded in the, in the gospel. Now, Matthew put those words there for a reason. Hey, guys. Hey, gals. Little children, little flock, fear not. I'm with you. I'm still, I'm still going to be on the earth. He said to the women, don't cling to me. I've got to go to heaven so that I and the Father can send the Spirit. I can come back to you to be your companion, your comforter. Indeed. It is a battle cry. We must stand firm in the ranks but it's not just that. It's so that our hearts will not fail us. On those days and in these seasons, perhaps in this day for you or in this era in the life of God's church, when it seems like we're losing, when it feels to you like Christ is not on the throne of your heart, take heart. He's with you. Behold, I will never leave you or forsake you. Spurgeon said it this way, The Savior is by His Spirit still on earth. Let, us in, let that encourage us. He is always ever in the middle of the fight, and therefore the outcome of the battle is not in doubt. As the conflict rages, what a deep satisfaction it is to know that the Lord Jesus, in His office as our great intercessor, is prevalently pleading for His people. Turn your anxious gaze from the battle below where shrouded in smoke the faithful fight, and lift your eyes above where the Savior lives and pleads. For while He intercedes, the cause of God is safe. Let us fight as if it all depended upon us, but let us look up and know that it all depends on Him. And always and at, every same, at the same time, our King and Captain is staking His claim over all things, including us. How inescapably crucial to hear that this Jesus is simultaneously our bridegroom, our good shepherd, our best of friends who sticks closer than a brother. No greater love has this friend because he laid down his life to turn us enemies into his friends. Yes, it is this lover of our souls 
crying, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Yes, He is as surely with us here and now in this room as He was with those 11 disciples on that mountain 2,000 years ago. Not physically, but still wonderfully in the newness of our lives with us as we might, that we might know Him and do His will on earth. Do His will on earth as it's being done in heaven. And where is this loving Lord, where He is present, there His divine Spirit of love is constantly at work. There may only be a little spark of the love of God that seems to be in your heart. It's a divine spark. And Jesus said, I won't extinguish a little spark. You may feel like a bruised reed. Jesus promised, I don't break off bruised reeds. The Holy Spirit is there to prop you up, to make the little spark into a torch, make us alive, make us glow. Even in the darkness, the darkness cannot overcome it. He is fuel, the Holy Spirit, fuel for His own great love so that our heart's affections will blaze and that Jesus' passion and His compassion will grow and become the ruling passion for His supremacy in all things, for the joy of our hearts and for the joy of all peoples. Thus, the Great Commission and the Great Commandment are joined in wedded bliss within our own inner being because we return God's love back to Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor, our neighbor here and around the world as we love ourselves. So, obedience to make disciples of our neighbors for His joy, for their joy, therein lies the passion to follow Jesus and to obey His great commission. So there it is. On the one side, to begin with, all authority. And on the other side, behold, I am with you always. Now the application as we come to a close. On either side of our doing are these two massive pillars of God's covenant doing. Because He is God, Jesus' power and right to do as He pleases. And because He is love, Jesus' promise of continual and never-ending companionship. In the middle, our doing, Jesus' great command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. At Matthew 10, verse 5, Jesus had previously commissioned these same apostles the first time. It was a more limited and exclusive assignment only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is now the second and far more extensive sending. This time He directs them and us by extension to all the nations. It is the universal church that is now being formed. Let's make some simple observations about uh, this verse and a half where Jesus concentrates His action-packed directive for our lives. Make disciples. That's the central imperative. It's the, only, it's the only expression that is in the imperative form. The others support it. Three supportive ways of making disciples. 
We've got to go to them, we are to baptize them, and we're to teach them. They all modify the main goal. In other words, to make disciples, we need to be doing these three essential things, going to people, baptizing, and teaching them. There's no substitute for any of these three activities in our lives, as well as in the life of the church. In fact, there is a combined necessary interdependence, a synergy of them all together. Rebecca talked about it. She said the inclination is uh, for there to be a kind of decisional evangelism. That's not what Jesus is talking about. To be sure, making a decision is a good starting point. But if you stay too near the door, maybe you never got in. You've got to make disciples of those we are seeking to win. To be a disciple, as we've seen, carries us beyond the entry point of our conversion from unbelief into a whole new life of learning and following Jesus. And of course, we're to disciple people with this authoritative, affectionate Christ into Him, not discipling them into images of ourselves, God forbid. To baptize means to immerse, not nations, but people, and to do so on the basis of their own repentance and faith. And therefore, little ones who, who cannot manifest, who cannot give testimony yet are they are, they are pre-disciples. <laughs> We're at work to, seeking to, to win them to, to a, a disciple's life. Baptism. Baptism symbolizes spiritual union with God. Father, our Creator. Son, our Redeemer. Holy Spirit, our Sanctifier. Union with God. That's what baptism symbolizes. Every bit of the strength that we desperately need to live obediently, all the precepts that Jesus taught His original disciples, completely depends and is most assuredly guaranteed to us by our real union with God through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus clearly foresaw what it would be like to be a disciple in the 21st century. The world we live in today this pluralistic, politically correct age where we say Jesus is the only way can get us into a heap of trouble. It can get you fired, perhaps, from your job. It can get you killed in some of the places to which God is calling us. And the challenge is all the higher to do this disciple-making as genuinely loving people, doing good works with humility, Again, reckoning ourselves as innocent doves, wise as serpents, sheep among the wolves. This morning, Jesus is once again seeking to motivate us, you and me, to make disciples of our neighbors and of the nations, not just to theologize, not just intellectually to consider these things. So where is my heart? Where is your heart and life with the love Behold, I am with you always, and the authority in all things of Jesus right now, right now. Perhaps little needs to be said if uh, you are among those whose hearts are thrilled with Jesus' authority and full of His affection. But what about the rest of us? Perhaps are not so full. Perhaps this sighting of the Savior for us to behold Him and to take hope in Him it's not as others 
who worship the Lord. Not like perhaps those disciples, some of whom worshiped Him and others doubted. Is it really Jesus? Well, look again. This is the other dimension of Jesus' majesty as He stands on the mountain, as He talks to us here this morning with His disciples. There were 120 of them probably there, not just the 11. 120 of them were there in, the, in, in, in Jerusalem, and so the 11 are probably weren't the only ones to be on the mountain. They're the ones who are spotlighted. They're the ones who are given the, the uh, commission, but it's a commission that's not just for those because <laughs> He's with <laughs> not just those who have, are long dead, but all, with all of us to the end of the age. So it's perhaps among those 120 that there were these doubters. Some worshipers, some hesitant, some reluctant, some weak and fearful. And how did Jesus respond? What did those first followers experience in their final hours with their glorious Lord? Well, Jesus had already excused the 11 who were asleep in the garden. The spirit is willing, he said, but the flesh is weak. He had protected them at his arrest, even though he knew they would all forsake him and flee. He prayed for Peter, who denied him. Jesus, in turn, did not deny Peter, but instead prayed for him and said, strengthen your brothers. And he bore with Thomas in his doubting. Put your finger here in my side. See the marks in my hands and in my feet. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Likewise, the two wavering disciples on the road to Emmaus, oh, foolish ones, he said, and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And again, there on the mountain, some doubted. And I have no doubt here in this room, some of you may be doubters. You're holding back. You're like those originals on that mountain. You find yourself perhaps too often unable to keep watch even for an hour, overcome by fearful, anxious thoughts, perhaps guilt-ridden and self-condemning as Peter must have been until Jesus appeared to him again. Slow of heart, like the road, those on the road to Emmaus, slow of heart to believe. Well, again, is it not encouraging that there is one who is always the same, yesterday, today, and forever? And he, and he sets his affection on his own. He can be entrusted. He, as we acknowledge our frailties and are honest and confess them, he can never be taken from us. Listen. He can never be taken from us, and He will never leave us, and He will never let us leave Him. That is why Jesus promised his, in His constant companionship, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So again, brothers and sisters, what do you hear in the ringing authority of Jesus' words, in the sweet reassurance of His ever-presence? Our Christianity does prove true if it is both an, a life of action and obedience 
a life of doing our Lord's words and not mere hearing, God forbid that our lives would amount to nothing at all. So how shall we become a loving, how shall you and I become loving, unselfish people? How shall Jesus' words stir us into disciple-making action? The way always begins with trusting, with this trusting in the dying, rising, and reigning Christ. His authority and His promise are both as true as ever. Bring yourself by the power of the Spirit into union with Christ's desires and His motives and His plans of action. He will reveal Himself to your sincere prayers. So get ready and go and make disciples. Just three or four practical suggestions and then we're done. Pray. Pray for specific people. The prayer was made for Rebecca. That's a good thing. In addition to praying for Rebecca, pray for your neighbors and for the network of people around you. Pray for this church's supported missionaries, to be sure. But pray for people who you have contact with. Karen and I were in Thailand uh, earlier uh, this year, and one of the things that we asked people to do was, was do some evangelism right now. And uh, I suggested, what, what about praying for the doorman at this building? <laughs> that seemed like a revelation to them. This old doorman had been there for who knows, as long as they'd rented the building. And he always greeted them every morning. And they always greeted him. Nobody ever stopped to find out his name. <laughs> So I said, all right, you got an assignment now. Between now and when we meet this afternoon, <laughs> somebody go down there and learn this guy's name. And several of them did. And um, several weeks later, I, 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 I asked uh, our counter missionary, okay, what about the doorman? <laughs> and he, and he, called, he, he mentioned his name, and he said, yep, we're, we're talking to him. We've built a bridge. So... Pray for people who are in your network. It's great to you know, pray for the missionaries who are a long ways away, but who is it that you can pray for? Right? You know, the store clerk, you know, the, the guy that you, but where you buy your gasoline, wherever it is. Pray for, your, pray for Jeff, your mailman, like Karen and I. They're all over the place. And some of us don't, don't really know anybody to pray for. Here you do. So take the time to introduce yourself. Second, uh, maybe for the next, uh, mm, I don't know, three months, take a, a loose change offering for Rebecca. <laughs> do, do any of you still pay cash or do you all use your credit cards? <laughs> maybe you don't have any loose change, but start paying with cash so you get quarters and nickels and dimes, the, you know, the, the little coins that jingle in your pocket. Collect them. It doesn't take very long to get $25, $30. It might be to, for Rebecca or somebody else, but... Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Collect some money and give it away to a, a doer, a goer. Read a biography of a missionary. I want to I, I ask for a raise, a raise of hands, but uh, there are a lot of amazing stories of, of the goers. I learned about a guy named David Livingston. <laughs> and you know something else that I discovered in, in his life? His favorite passage of Scripture was Matthew 28, 
20, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Be present among unbelievers. Obviously, this goes along with praying for specific people. Open your home. Walk your dog in the neighborhood. (laughs) Pay attention to the people that you see regularly. And finally, speak. Speak as a Christian. (laughs) All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Amen.